Welcome to Open Spaces. From Wyoming Public Radio News, I'm Camila Kodalska. Finding an immigration lawyer is difficult for Wyomingites looking to gain citizenship, but a new program from UW's Civil Legal Services Clinic is trying to help solve that problem. So if you're an immigrant in the state of Wyoming and you don't already have resources, and you don't have the money to pay for it, you're kind of out of luck. Electric long-haul semi-trucks are hitting the road, but there are still barriers to replacing diesel rigs. We visited a truck stop in the state. When you're talking our national supply chain, you can't just say, oh, we'll figure it out. We have to know and it has to work. The Du Bois Museum is helping community members get outside and learn about the surrounding area. So I think that there's something really visceral to connect you to the history that isn't just like, I'm looking at text in a museum. Join us for those stories and more on Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. Welcome to Open Spaces. From Wyoming Public Radio News, I'm Camila Kodalska. Every summer, the Du Bois Museum hosts adventure treks to help visitors and locals alike learn about the area. New this year, the museum brought a driving tour up Union Pass, an area with panoramic mountain views and a rich history. Wyoming Public Radio's Hannah Haberman rode along the tour. Who bought the Parker Ranch here, Steve? Do you know? No, I don't. A line of cars make their way up Union Pass Road, bumping through hairpin turns bordered by tall pine trees. Lupin and fireweed flowers turn the roadsides purple and pink, and the cars make way for the occasional biker and wandering cow. Each summer, the Du Bois Museum puts on six educational outings to different landmarks in the area. Today is the first time the museum has organized a trip up to Union Pass, which offers views of the Absorcas, Winds, and Teton Mountain ranges. So if you park here and you walk out a little bit, you can see the tie flumes. Yeah, you sure can. And there's an old, uh, there's an old tie-hat cabin right there. And, yep. Uh, that's where the flumes started. In one of the trucks, staff from the museum point out clues to the road's history. The road was built for the old tie hack industry, where people cut timber to make railroad ties by hand. Steve Banks is leading the tour and says Wyoming played a big role in building the Transcontinental Railroad. And then in the spring, when the river crested and went down, then they would kick all of those ties into the river and float them down to Riverton. Museum staff member Andrea Billingsley says that while there's still logging taking place in the area, the road is now mostly used for ATVing, snowmobiling, and recreating. It's more of a, a scenic drive than anything else. A lot of people fish up here. Um, some people run cattle loose up here. Wildflowers are absolutely beautiful up here. Billingsley says the tours are a great chance for people to be curious about where they are. Yeah, everybody wants to know what's far away, but not what's right underneath their nose. Don't back up or you'd be in a hole. That's why At I'm the top of the pass, to to 20 or so people <laughs> clamber out of their cars wearing backpacks yeah. and bear spray. So. The elevation is just over 9,200 feet. The group is largely in their 50s, 60s, well, and 70s. They mingle and chat as they walk a short ways towards a circle of plaques about Union Pass. <laughs> there, Banks points out Three Waters Mountain. The area is what's called a triple divide where water can flow into the Mississippi, Columbia, or Colorado rivers. The big square one that looks like a kind of like a loaf of bread on the right, and then the bigger one on the left, 
It's right over in that area there where the waters separate because by that time when you get between those two mountains, you're on the other side of the divide. Banks explains that Union Pass's location and the ability to move between three major water drainages was beneficial to anyone navigating the landscape. He says the pass was historically used by many different Native American tribes, as well as fur trappers and expeditions of mountain men in the mid-1800s. The mountain crow are the ones who established themselves in this country here. That's where most of the names come from. The Shoshone have their own names, and they don't necessarily mean the same thing as it does in the crow. The Yellowstone River was called the Elk River for a long time. That's a crow thing. You want another pole? No, thank you, honey. I appreciate it. The group walks up a short hill to get a better view of the mountains. Robin Spradlin is with her husband, Dave. While her husband is a regular on the tracks, Spradlin isn't always able to go. Most of them are really long walks, and I can't do it, but he'll go and then take me on the side-by-side -side later, if possible. He goes on almost all of them. They're incredibly informative and interesting. They've lived in Dubois for four years, and Spradlin says the area is heaven on earth. Look at this. It's incredible. Um, yeah, wish we could have gotten here 20 years ago. Also along for the trek is Jane Miter, the museum's collections manager. She says the format of today's tour makes sure a wide range of people, like Spradlin, can come on the track. The good thing about these driving treks is that they give people who wouldn't usually be able to go on our walking treks, which are like a couple miles plus. So this group of people are, you know, maybe like physically able, but it's nice because they're able to come out. To Miter, getting outside is a great way to learn about the area's past and present, and one the museum is excited to offer. The landscape is so integral to what the history itself is. So I think that there's something really visceral to connect you to the history that isn't just like, I'm looking at text in a museum. There's, there's a, a, a deeper level to it that's really awesome to be able to give the opportunity to people. For Miter, landscapes can spark curiosity no matter what your age is. And sometimes, an amazing view really is only a short drive away. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Hannah Haberman. Many Wyoming animal shelters have strained resources, largely because of a lack of donations and space for rescued animals. So getting communities involved is key. Wyoming Public Radio's Eric Vigil has the story. Elena Vargas is giving a tour of the Laramie Animal Welfare Society's main office. Vargas is naming cats lying down waiting for a home. <laughs> now, do you want to come out? Or, the only thing is, is that the other cats will eat her food, so I have to hide it. Oh, I see. Huh. Yeah, they eat your food. The Laramie Animal Welfare Society, or LAWS, is a community-based nonprofit that uses social media and events to make that community connection. LAWS's Catherine Eastman Curry says it worked well in the past. That's the way it used to be, 2020, 2021, even 2022. We would see pretty good success with our um, social media posts. But in the past year, it's really decreased. You know, we've seen a 66% decrease in donations over the past year. We've also seen a 70% decrease in adoptions over the past year. 
Over the past year, nonprofits have been seeing a decrease in donations as people are increasingly unsure about the state of the economy. A survey from the Pew Research Center found that just 19% of those polled think the economic conditions of the United States today is excellent or good. This lack of confidence in the economy is having drastic effects on nonprofits. As Americans become more frugal with their spending, they gave the lowest percentage of their disposable incomes to charity in 27 years in 2022, according to Giving USA. Because of this, Laws is finding that it's now harder to provide community support to pet owners during this challenging time. Eastman Curry says their operations have been strained over the past year. So a lack of adoptions means a lack of animals that we're able to help, mm -hmm. um, and more animals staying in care longer, more resources expended on the animals in care, and so it's just this cycle of like, yeah. not enough, I guess. Laws is not alone. Alicia Bruce works with Park County Animal Shelter. She says the shelter had to stop accepting animals from their online community in June. At our max number, we were actually at 185 animals, um, which was we could not have on site because we are actually only able to have 85 animals on site for capacity. Bruce has been looking to lower their numbers by putting on events to increase community engagement. But they are running into a problem. Been going around asking for sponsorships and just even local businesses just don't have the money right now to uh, sponsor these events. But the shelter is still putting on as many events as they can. That's because these events can really make a difference. Cheyenne Animal Shelter, during the month of July, partnered with the Bissell Pet Foundation to put on the Empty the Shelter event. Nikki Harrison works at the shelter. She says adoption fees for cats and dogs were lowered with help from the foundation. And it came at a perfect time for us when we hit kind of that peak of summer when uh, our, our capacity is just at an all-time high, typically through the month of July. So to have that adoption event come in simultaneously as all of the kittens who are in foster homes start coming back into the shelter to be adopted, or as the increased number of stray animals we see continues to rise, it was a really successful event and the timing was even better. Over 200 animals were adopted. Harrison says that the Cheyenne shelter is in a fortunate spot as they haven't been under the same space and donation stress. Craig Cummings works at the Casper Humane Society. Cummins says that the Humane Society puts on events not just to get more donations and adopt more animals, but to foster a community of people who have the same goals. Um, for me personally, it's, a, it's again about those relationships and, and that feeling of community. And, um, you know, every, every effort is important and it's helpful. With economic difficulty, everyone is affected. But Cummins points out that those who work at animal shelters are especially vulnerable. I have a shelter manager who says all the time, you know, it's not like we're at the mall folding t-shirts, you know. These are living, breathing creatures and they depend on us and it's, you know, it's important work. And so, yeah, it's, yeah, we take it personal. The animal shelters hope lies in the community around them to come and support them as they have supported so many animals. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Eric Vigil. University of Wyoming law students found there's a lack of immigration lawyers in the state. 
what they're doing to fix this up next on Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. Immigration lawyers are hard to come by in Wyoming, and that can make an already long and complex process even more daunting. The University of Wyoming's Civil Legal Services Clinic is trying to fill the need. Wyoming Public Radio's Suraj Singaretti reports. And listeners, please note that this story does contain brief mentions of domestic violence and suicide. Jessica Fernandez Medina is a second-generation immigrant who has lived in Cheyenne for 40 years. Throughout her childhood, she remembers driving the hour and a half between home and Denver often. So I remember going, leaving um, Cheyenne like at three in the morning so we could get there. And then you would have to stand in line because it was kind of like first come, first serve. And they would only serve so many people. And then you were done. Her parents had crossed the border illegally and were trying to gain permanent residency. But the closest immigration court is in Colorado, which is why they made the journey there over many seasons. During the wintertime, we would take turns standing out in line. So one of us would stay in the car and warm up while the other one was standing out. And then we'd kind of flip flop and let the other person warm up. It took seven years and 15 trips to Denver for her parents to become permanent residents. It was a long process. But an event recently held in Cheyenne's Laramie County Public Library is trying to make that journey easier for immigrants today. It was organized by the University of Wyoming's Civil Legal Services Clinic, which is staffed completely by law students. They provide free legal help to Wyomingites who couldn't otherwise afford representation. Anna Rodriguez is the mind behind the event. Um, and then the more I looked into it, the more I realized that there's not that much um, immigration outreach or immigration services in the state of Wyoming. There's maybe like three or four immigration attorneys in the state that I could find. Um, and then immigration advocacy groups are very few and far in between. Wyoming is also one of 22 states without an immigration court. That's why today, although the process can mostly be completed online, immigrants still have to drive to Denver for their final hearings. One of the reasons why Wyoming doesn't have a court might be because of the state's smaller immigrant population. In 2021, only 3.4% of the population were first-generation immigrants. But Rodriguez says that's no excuse. Wyoming is a pretty big state, um, so the lack of resources was just really shocking to me. She gathered the few immigration attorneys she could find in one place, in the hopes that people could come, ask any questions they had, and get the help they needed. One of those volunteer attorneys was Nimzi Garcia, who offers pro bono services to many in Wyoming. Yeah, I would say that there are a fair amount of people who still try to do immigration by themselves. But then I think that a lot of times, unfortunately, those come back to the immigration attorneys, right? Because they're like, oh, I tried to do this by myself, but it didn't work for whatever reason. Sarah Melendez agrees. Her husband Alberto recently gained permanent residency through marriage. Their lawyer helped them navigate problems they never would have noticed on their own. It was to a point where our lawyer was providing us consultation because my husband had um, his son's handprint on, like, tattooed on his hand. And she's like, it looks like a cartel's, uh, like, tattoo. So he had to get it covered so that it wouldn't be misrepresented as him a part of a cartel. 
Melendez and her husband had to work with an attorney based in Colorado. Ultimately, the process took five years and over $8,000 in legal and travel fees. That was another big motivator for Rodriguez to organize this free event. So if you're an immigrant in the state of Wyoming and you don't already have resources and you don't have the money to pay for it, you're kind of out of luck. Those obstacles mean that people often stay undocumented, says Raquel Navarrete. She's a member of CHISPA, a Hispanic community group in Cheyenne. Navarrete says even if finances aren't a problem, distress can often keep people from utilizing legal services. Um, I've heard stories where people have lost tons of money spending on lawyers that were supposed to help them that never did. The fear of deportation is present throughout the journey to become documented. Navarrete remembers that in 2012, there was an ICE raid at Little America Hotel in Cheyenne. A woman who worked there had come to the U.S. to escape her abusive husband in Mexico. She avoided the ICE raid, but her fear of being deported and sent back to her husband led her to kill both herself and her daughter by setting their trailer on fire. She could have made her documents because America never sends people back that are at risk, and if she would have known that, I highly doubt it she would have did what she did. Navarrete heard the story from her friend, Juana, who worked at the hotel alongside that woman. Even though that event was over a decade ago, Juana still hasn't become documented because of how complicated the process is. And this is why it's so important that we get this outreach out there so those things don't happen to people. Because these people literally are scared. They don't know what to do. But Juana did attend the free immigration event put on by the Civil Legal Services Clinic. She went with her husband, Anavarete, who wasn't immigrating herself, but wanted to see what the event was like. It felt very, in my opinion, very peaceful and welcoming. Yeah. So I feel like because of that, it, it, if I was an immigrant looking for assistance, I would feel very excited to have that support there. The clinic hopes to hold a similar event in late fall in Casper, which is also home to an ICE detention center. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Stuart Singaretti. have heard the phrase, if you bought it, a truck brought it. Long-haul trucking is a major part of American commerce and greenhouse gas emissions. Wyoming Public Radio's Will Walkie reports on efforts to electrify long-haul trucking and the barriers these efforts face. The Petro Travel Center off of Interstate 80 in Laramie is like a gas station on steroids. You can grab gas and a bite to eat, but also do laundry, shower, and if you're bored, play some Pac-Man. Long hauler Richard Summers is outside filling up his diesel truck, which is hauling two yellow shipping containers. I came out of Portland, Oregon, I'm headed to Chesapeake, Virginia, and then home to South Carolina. He's been doing the job for 30 years and doesn't mind life on the road, which he says can be lonely, stressful, and tough on your back. Just enjoy traveling and getting paid to see everything nobody else gets to. You know, my dad was a trucker, my grandpa was a trucker, my cousins are truckers. People like Summers play a vital part in the U.S. economy. Trucks move about 73% of all domestic freight and traveled more than 300 billion miles in 2021. But medium and heavy-duty trucks, just 5% of vehicles on the road, contribute more than 20% of transportation emissions. So, efforts are underway to electrify long-haul vehicles. 
Tesla CEO Elon Musk unveiled a sleek electric semi at a company factory outside Reno last year. If you're a, a truck driver and you want the most badass rig on the road, this is it. The semi has up to a 500-mile range, and video shows it flying by a diesel rig up a mountain pass in the Sierra Nevadas. Musk says these trucks will contribute to better air quality. So from a sort of health standpoint, particularly in like cities, this is a huge uh, impact, like it's gigantic. Other manufacturers like Peterbilt and Volvo are also building electric trucks. And Pepsi has bought a few Tesla semis to make deliveries in California. But if you ask a lot of truckers, like Richard Summers, he probably won't ever switch from diesel. We can't even keep our electrical grid going just running the air conditioner in the summertime. So how are you going to do all the electric trucks, the electric cars, run your home, everything else? It's just not feasible right now. We don't have the technology. Summers has a lot of concerns. For one, electric big rigs can cost hundreds of thousands of dollars, usually two or three times more than their diesel counterparts. The batteries also weigh a lot. Most of all, there aren't enough parking spaces or good chargers on the interstate system. Louis Pugh is with an independent driver's association. The way I understand, you charge them, you got a three, maybe five, maybe 600 mile range, and then they have to charge again, maybe up to eight hours. States like California and the federal government have goals to phase out emissions from heavy-duty vehicles in the next couple of decades, and potential mandates to help them get there. Pew says he's not against cleaner air, but he also doesn't want the government to put his members in a bad position by regulating before something is feasible. When you're talking our national supply chain, you can't just say, oh, we'll figure it out. We have to know, and it has to work. That's why the Biden administration is spending a lot to build its own charging stations and providing tax credits to companies who buy zero emissions vehicles. Bernd Hyde is with the research firm McKinsey & Company. He says to meet basic infrastructure needs, the U.S. needs to build a quarter of a million charging stations. Plus, invest more in hydrogen refueling technology. That's another clean energy option. But he says there are enormous incentives to get it done beyond the climate. So I think exactly this coast-to-coast trucking, if you do the math with a fuel cell electric truck versus a diesel truck, at a certain point that will break even. Um, so I think the, the vehicles itself are uh, on a great trajectory to be developed. Andy says in another decade, as more electric semis are produced, they'll become cheaper. And by then, even autonomous vehicles could be in play. Still, it's clear at the truck stop in Laramie, which didn't have any charging stations, the road to electrification remains a long one. For Wyoming Public Radio News, I'm Will Walkie in Laramie. Twenty years ago, huge fires engulfed the East Corridor of Yellowstone National Park. Up next on Open Spaces, we look at how the landscape was changed, even to this day. Welcome back to Open Spaces. 
from Wyoming Public Radio News, I'm Camila Kodalska. For the past two weeks or so, the nation has been enthralled by the devastation of the wind-driven wildfires in Maui. Twenty years ago, two huge wind-driven fires engulfed the forests lining Yellowstone National Park's eastern corridor. Wyoming Public Radio's Penny Preston was there the night it started. She reports on how the area is still impacted by the fires today. Yellowstone Lake laps at its northeastern shore in Mary Bay. This is the land of bears and burns. It is the interior border of the East Fire, which started with a lightning strike near Cub Creek. It happened late at night, August 11, 2003. By the time it was out, the fire had burned and blackened 17,000 acres from the top of Sylvan Pass to the Pelican Valley Trailhead sparing the buildings at Fishing Bridge, but demolishing several cars parked near Yellowstone Lake. I was there that night when the East Fire started, parked on the road next to a truck whose occupants were also mesmerized at the site. It was breathtaking to witness the power of a wildfire in Yellowstone National Park. I saw trees exploding in front of me, and there was nothing I nor anyone else could do to stop it. I was here in 2003 as a seasonal fire effects crew member. That's Yellowstone's fire ecologist, Rebecca Smith. I remember when the call came in uh, for the initial fire size up, we had someone up in the helicopter flying over the area where the East Fire started. And by the time they got the helicopter from Mammoth to East Entrance, it was already a running crown fire which is not something that we can readily stop in fire, um, no matter what resources we use. There was another fire burning nearby that hot August, the Grizzly Fire, which scorched nearly 4,100 acres north of Yellowstone Lake. The park's east entrance was closed August 13th for more than 1,000 men and women working to contain the East and Grizzly Fires. If you drive up to a parking area called Lake Butte Overlook today, there are dead standing trees as far as the eyes can see. Some visitors think it must be the remains of the 1988 wildfires. Creston Bruin is studying the site. He's from Denmark. I asked him when the fire happened. When I look at the area and I see uh, how the new trees have come up, uh, they might look like being uh, six or 10 years old. The old burned trees, they are, they are blown down by the wind, so um, they have got rotten, and, uh, and so that must also be some years. So my guess would be uh, six to 10 years. Brune is surprised to learn this was a 20-year-old burn. Fire ecologist Rebecca Smith says this part of the park is different than the parts that were burned in the 1988 wildfires, which were dominated by lodgepole pines. Those areas have regrown much more quickly, with tall pines changing the burn into a forest again. She says this East Burn area had a mixed forest of spruce fir and some lodgepole pine. So people in the cars that are passing by see more lake views and almost bare hilltops because it takes a long time for spruce and fir to grow back. Some areas here have smaller lodgepole pines among the dead trunks. Smith pointed out, we are seeing a lot of ground uh, vegetation coming in, like grasses, fireweed, lupins. Tourists seem to be seeing more grizzlies in the park in the last 20 years. This is my husband chopping wood to keep us warm this August. 
because the temperatures drop down into the 40s at night in the Shoshone Forest, east of Yellowstone. It's been a cool, wet summer. I think the grizzly bear population is pretty healthy along here, on the east side of, uh, of Yellowstone particularly. My husband is Dr. Charles Preston, the founding curator of the Draper Natural History Museum in Cody. He's a wildlife ecologist. He's watched the evolution of the forest and its inhabitants inside the east and grizzly burn scars. Wildfires are actually beneficial to grizzly bears. The fires open up the canopy and they provide new nutrients in the soil, which supports really lush vegetation. And it's the mainstay of the grizzly bear diet for much of the year. So the Yellowstone visitor who is passing by the dead and fallen trees often stops in this corridor to join the bear jams. Preston says those bear jams are very common here. Grizzly bears are also much more obvious to the passers-by as they drive by some of these areas that have been burned because the timber now is gone. Uh, they, can, uh, they have a much better view of grizzly bears from the road. To a passerby who doesn't know or remember when this great fire scorched 16 miles of forest along the road to Fishing Bridge, this is the land of burns and bears. From Yellowstone, Penny Preston for Wyoming Public Radio. Since those fires on the Eastern Corridor, the way we think about wildfire management has changed. And Wyoming is getting a fresh perspective. Last month, a new Wyoming state forester was selected by Governor Mark Gordon to fill the vacancy left by longtime Bill Crasper. Wyoming Public Radio's Hugh Cook spoke with Kelly Norris about the health of Wyoming's forest, her plans for the agency, and being the first woman to fill the position. I am the first woman state forester for the state of Wyoming, also the first assistant district forester, the first female district forester, and the first woman assistant state forester of operations. As your time as state forester, what are some of the things that you're focusing on for Wyoming's forests that might go back to Bill Crapser's time from his tenure as well as what are you hoping to focus on for your tenure? We are building upon what we've been working towards as a state agency and with our forests. We are really focusing, for me personally, focusing on our partnerships and in how we can grow capacity. Immediately, we have a capacity issue within our agency. We, we're hiring as quickly as we can. That's a real big focus for us. We're sitting at 20% vacancy rate. We right now have quite a bit of turnover. With all of the funding and all of the interest going into the forestry profession and the firefighting profession, we are finding that we have to become much more competitive in our positions, and we're learning to grow within that and evolve as we work towards building our capacity internally. And then on top of that, we're really working with our state partners, our other state agencies, as well as our federal agencies to just grow capacity, to get more work done on the ground. We're really looking at how can we look at cross-boundary projects at a landscape level? What are the barriers we can take away? How can we be more efficient together through our good neighbor authority projects or through different grants and other avenues to get that work done? Outside of that, I think the other thing we're really always focused on is wildfire and, and the issue of wildfire. And we're going to continue to work with our wildfire community, both our volunteer base and our county base 
through the state side, as well as our federal partners and the, the federal firefighting community and how we can work together to continue to build and sustain capacity in the wildfire community. And lastly, one of the things that we really are going to have to focus on in the next five to 10 years, depending how long it takes, is we have three forest plan revisions kicking off in the state of Wyoming. We have the Black Hills, we have the Bridger Teton, and we have the Medicine Bow Route National Forest. And and that's going to take quite a bit of our time and effort. And it's going to be very important that we're at the table helping influence and speaking on behalf of Wyoming's forests through that process. What will those forest plan revisions look like? What does that entail? So that entails quite a bit of time and collaboration. We work really closely with the governor's office and other state agencies helping formulate our input. We are a stakeholder that is at a cooperating status through the forest planning rule. And and so we get to work with the forest and how we want to influence and see that. But we are looking at two of those forest plan revisions are through region two, and one of them is through region four. And so just is going to take quite a bit of coordination between all of us at the state level, and then all of our, our partners to be there at the table, county commissioners, all sorts of county working groups, to help provide that influence and that desire of how those forest plans will turn out. As we've been learning, those forest plans get put into place and they, they can be 30 years old before they get revisited again. So it's very, very important for all of us in Wyoming to be involved in them. How would you describe the health of Wyoming's forests? Well, Wyoming's forests have been through quite a dynamic change over the last couple of decades. We had the mountain pine beetle come through. We've had different other epidemics. We're, we're in a situation with the western spruce budworm for multiple years now in certain areas of the state. And there's other areas where we're watching very closely to see if we're going to see another insect and disease outbreak. So with that, they're prime. They're prime for wildfire. They're definitely prime to have some management or treatments done for their forest health and for the diversity and the needs of those watersheds. Wyoming's forests are extremely important when it comes to what they provide to the water source for the rest of the West. They are headwater states. We are a headwater forest in in many of our forests. And so keeping our forests healthy is extremely important as it will affect the health of the water. Fire suppression is something that's not only has a lot of attention here in Wyoming, but certainly throughout the West and and obviously what's happening, as you know, in Canada with some of those uh, major wildfires there and everything. For for this year thus far, what has been the situation here compared to other places and what is the, the capacity for fighting a wild a major wildfire here in Wyoming if if one were to occur? This year, we've been very quiet. It's been obviously apparent we've had quite the monsoonal rains. We've had quite a bit of moisture. I've been told by numerous ranchers it's the best grass they've seen in over 30 years, and it's been needed. But we're drying out. We've been drying out the last week, and we're continuing to dry out into the next weeks. And and so what we are concerned about is what fall is to bring with hunters and campfires. And as we get into the fall, some of Wyoming's largest fires that we've had to manage and deal with happened in the fall. Didn't start until September. 
September or October. And so we're not out of the woods whatsoever. We've held very strong and we are still very prepared in many ways for for wildfire to start. We've had multiple initial attacks across the state. We've had two larger fires. We had multiple starts across the state due to lightning. And we had one type three team come in in Goshen County to manage a complex. And then we've had another couple larger fires up in the basin. So we're watching closely. We have um, our state seats, single engine air tankers that are located out of Casper. And we also have the state helicopter program, which we provide. And we also have a hand crew that we provide through the inmate program that we um, partner with Wyoming Department of Corrections with. And then we also have all of our militia, but we really help coordinate closely with our county and our federal partners. We very much depend on our volunteers. And most of the majority of Wyoming's state forestry and state lands, we, we depend on initial attack of the volunteer firefighter base, as well as our federal firefighter base. What we provide and what we can bring is aviation. We bring hand crew. We bring a few resources, but we, we really, it is very important for us to support our federal partners and our county volunteers in helping them recruit and retain their firefighters. They are very, very important to Wyoming. Is there anything else that you're making a priority to focus on? One of the things we haven't talked too much in detail about is our Good Neighbor Authority program. And one of the things we are very focused on is the success of that program and how well that's been doing. And that that is also in connection with the Farm Bill, which is being discussed and about to expire in, in the coming month. But our much of the Farm Bill also has forestry title and has authorities in it. And, and that's where the Good Neighbor Authority lies. And we have great partnerships with our national forests and with Wyoming BLM. And we have currently five GNA foresters and a permanent GNA coordinator that work on national forest lands, helping get more work done on the ground. And then what we do is that work gets contracted through state contracting systems. It's more efficient. We're problem solving. We're trying to make more of that commercial timber available in different forms and different sizes and different size contracts to help our industry. So one of the things we really want to focus on is continuing to grow the amount of wood that we get available, continue to improve and and increase the amount of treatments across our forests and and having having that partnership with our our federal partners and getting that to kick off. So we're going to continue to do that. That is a real priority for us is how do we look at our forests with our federal partners? Where are our priorities? Where do we want to say we're all going to come together, state, private, federal lands, and manage this entire landscape because it's critical to us. That was Wyoming Public Radio's Hugh Cook speaking with Wyoming State Forester Kelly Norris. We close the show diving deep into how some Wyomingites are conserving their lands. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Camila Kodalska. If you've been a Wyoming Public Radio listener for some time, you might have heard some of our coverage on conservation easements. They're a tool sometimes used by landowners. It's a legally binding contract that tries to keep wide open spaces 
open. Well, today we'll hear a deep dive on ranchers who are doing just that, preserving their open spaces for both ranching and wildlife. Wyoming Public Radio's Caitlin Tan has the story. Rancher Al Johnson of Albany County remembers what it was like as a kid at Terry Creek Ranch. When I first came up the road as a little kid, it was like driving into Disneyland. Uh, there was so much wildlife everywhere. It's amazing the amount of animals that were here. Uh, there was literally thousands of mule deer uh, in this area. But that's not the case now. More than 60 years later, Johnson says he sees significantly less wildlife out on the ranch. He thinks it's because of a lot of things, but development and subdivisions are some of the bigger ones. I don't have any control over that. Uh, what I do have control over is my land. Deer, elk, and pronghorn migrate through his 634-acre ranch in southeast Wyoming. It sits on rolling hills overlooking a creek where beavers have nestled in creating several ponds. In the distance are the snow-capped peaks of the snowy range. And just like a lot of places in the state, the wind blows hard out here. Johnson drives his truck on a bumpy two-track across the ranch. Boy, look at those trees, bro. <laughs> he points to Sheep Mountain. It's like a giant uplift in the prairie, kind of a standalone mountain. It has a long ridge line covered in trees and holds one of the country's few big game refuges. One hillside of Sheep Mountain is on Johnson's property, and it's pretty windswept and open. So a lot of those big game come onto his property in the winter looking for food. The, the wind that's blowing now cleans off these hills over here, and this is uh, where they come for their feed when everything else has a lot of snow on it. Johnson gets out of the truck and stands by a taut three-strand wire fence with wooden top poles. It's a wildlife-friendly fence he had put up a couple years ago. And with the rail on top, it looks like it'll make it really easy for the elk to go over and the deer go under. We know the antelope are going under good. The fence is part of his effort to help with wildlife migration and grazing. He partnered with the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation in 2021 to conserve this area of his ranch for wildlife. Studies show that wildlife that can migrate and move freely are more likely to live longer, healthier lives. Johnson's agreement is called a conservation easement, which means the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation basically bought the development rights to his ranch to preserve the land for wildlife. The land is still in Johnson's name and he can still ranch on it, but he can't ever sell it to developers. So it's a very big decision. That's Jessica Crowder with the Stock Growers Land Trust. They're just one group in the state negotiating conservation easements. They've worked with 90 families since 2001. With that very big decision come families who really just do have that deep connection with the land, who are interested in allowing agriculture to exist on that land forever. So people like the Johnsons are a big part of the puzzle of conserving wildlife habitat, but also agriculture land. It's kind of like a trade. If you help protect wildlife and don't sell your ranch to someone who wants to subdivide, They'll give you funds to keep your ranch going. And that's really important for, you know, just continuing food production in our country. I think that we are seeing a loss of agricultural lands at a, at a much faster pace now than we have in recent years. 
And it's just really important to keep those lands available for future generations to be able to produce agricultural products on those lands. And Crowder says it's working. Her group alone has conserved almost 300,000 acres in Wyoming. Over in Bighorn County is the Bischoffs. The cattle ranch they run sits at the base of the mountains with a mix of lush green hay meadows and rugged rocky terrain. There's even a 1,200-foot canyon, all perfect habitat for mule deer, bighorn sheep, and elk. Tyrell Bischoff runs the day-to-day operations. He looks straight out of a Western movie, with a cowboy hat, silk scarf, and worn-in blue jeans. On any given day, Bischoff might be fixing fence, or unloading his horse from a trailer, getting ready for a big day on the range. or doctoring cattle. On this particular crisp spring morning, Bischoff stands with a coffee in one hand and a milk bottle in the other. A little black newborn calf sucks the milk. Keeping this little guy alive wasn't easy. Yeah, normally after that kind of weather, you wouldn't have any extra calves around. Late winter storms make it hard for calving. If you're not checking on them around the clock, they might die. This is a way of life for Bischoff. He wouldn't have it any other way. But 10 years ago, he almost lost it. Our ranch was getting ready to go under. Like We were basically in bankruptcy and in over our heads. Right before calling it quits on ranching altogether, his family secured a conservation easement on their property with the Natural Resources Conservation Service in 2013. They're with the federal government, which also offers conservation easement deals made it so we could pay off all of our debt and have a little bit of money to get back on our feet and so it was kind of like a like a new like a new beginning just a whole new start and in the years since they've used the money to hire a few ranch hands and even increase their cattle numbers all while keeping open spaces for wildlife Now, conservation easements are just one tool. They aren't for everybody. That's Jennifer Lamb. She's with the Nature Conservancy in Lander. They're another group that negotiates easements. Lamb says ranchers that turn to them usually want to help wildlife out, but also are looking for the financial incentives, kind of like the Bischoffs. It can be a useful either infusion of of cash to help a struggling operation or just to maintain an operation so that future generations can take it over. But Lamb says the fact that it's forever can kind of be a turnoff for some. And each easement has unique restrictions, things like limiting further development or what kind of crops they can grow. But what if they do want a different kind of agricultural operation in the future and they do want more flexibility to be able to either add infrastructure or um, change their operation entirely or... Or what if they think the future is is subdivision, right? Lamb says it really just varies from ranch to ranch and what kind of values each operation has. One way to think about it is how people might like the state to look in the future. Just in the last three years, Wyoming's population has grown by 4,500 people. And that growth is expected to continue. That means more houses, businesses, and just people on the landscape. 
So how all this development intermingles with wildlife and ranch operations could largely be determined by how much land is kept open in the coming years. Back with Al Johnson from the beginning of our story, he says he's just doing the best he can to manage his land, and the conservation easement route worked for him. So I, I don't know what it's going to be like, uh, but this was just a small, this is what we can do to make it better uh, deal, and we're pretty small potatoes. But uh, it just felt good to give something back instead of always taking. Now, it's still a relatively small group of folks. About 1% of Wyoming land is under a conservation easement. Nationwide, the numbers are pretty similar. It's about 1.5% of land from coast to coast. But those who've taken on an easement for wildlife or agriculture say it's one way of ensuring their piece of wide open space stays open. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Caitlin Tan. This story was produced in partnership with the Wyoming Migration Initiative at the University of Wyoming. Some of the audio used in this segment was sourced from the My Wild Land film series presented by Muley Fanatic Foundation with support from Maven. That's all for today's episode of Open Spaces. Thanks for listening. The entire show and individual segments can be found on our website at wyomingpublicmedia.org. The show can also be found wherever you get your podcasts. Plus, we post all our stories on the station's social media platforms. Thanks to Caitlin Tan, our producer for today, and Eric Vigil, our digital producer and social media manager for the show. Open Spaces is a production of Wyoming Public Radio News. (laughs) 